As we uh, look in our scriptures this morning, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to ask a few questions. Um, This is, Paul said, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words, but the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Uh, I hope that that's what happens this morning. You know the first part won't happen, that I won't be here with wise and persuasive words. So I want to ask you guys a few questions to get us involved and remember what's going on in these scriptures so that we don't sit here and just let this roll over us. First of all, I want to ask you, from what we have studied so far in 1 Timothy, what do you know about Paul? What, what have we seen about Paul? What do we understand about Paul historically here with this? He loves Timothy very much. Amen. Right. What else? Okay. He had invested himself for years there in Ephesus, teaching, building that church up. Thank you, brother. Okay. Paul has been transformed. Yeah, that's part of this, his testimony in that first chapter. Amen. It's anyone, young and old. Sometimes the young do better than us old folks. He had actually started this church, uh, presumably during his first missionary journey. So that's another piece of information about Paul. There's other things we could say about him, but what, what do we know about Timothy? I'm going to stir those brain cells this morning so as we study the word, they'll be ready. What do we know about Timothy? Okay, he's considered a true son in the faith. What else? Amen. Yeah, he, he came to Christ and grew in Christ through his mother and his grandmother. Good. His character is that he's faithful and trustworthy. Why did he get this letter? Amen. He's in a position of leadership there in the church. Remember what Paul did? He put him there and he said, I want you to stay here. And he had a role for him, an important role for him. Let me ask you this. What do you know about the city? The city where this takes place. What what city is it? Where is it? What's it like? That's right. It's a trade route hub. Very important. What else? Decadent. Decadent. Amen. Why? What? What's kind of the center of the decadence in that city? Diana. Diana. Right. The temple of Diana. It's a very wicked, idolatrous religion that really owns that city. Anything else you can think of? It's part of Asia Minor location. It's right along the the ocean, the Mediterranean, which, as Jarvis said, makes it a very uh, vibrant economic hub. It's a port city. Uh, 
Historically, port cities have not been very nice places, very clean places. They have reputations. Ephesus lived up to that reputation. There's a church in that city. What do we understand to be going on at that church? There's false teachers. Very good. False teachers. What else do you know? There's a lot of dissension. There's division. The false teachers actually happen to be elders, leaders. Uh, the church is on, on the brink. This is a fight for the life of this church, this church in Ephesus. Timothy is there, and he is in battle form. Keep in mind, keep in mind as we study this this morning, the setting of this letter. It comes from a seasoned veteran of spiritual warfare, Paul. And he's in his final years of life. He exhorts, teaches, and he encourages Timothy, a young pastor, who is waging a spiritual war for Christ. Timothy is in a church in the heart of the wild and prosperous port city of Ephesus. Paul has been there, as we we talked earlier. He knows Ephesus well. In fact, he taught continually in that same church for two to three years, building a strong foundation upon Christ and the gospel. But now that church, that church has been occupied by the enemy and false teachers. That's what's going on in that little church. From a remote location, Paul has two supply lines he utilizes to reinforce Timothy on the battlefront. The first line of support is mentioned in the first line of support is mentioned in 2 Timothy 1 verse 3. Paul writes, I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night. You see that? That is one of Paul's most vital ways of supporting. That's why we had two men pray for Pablo this morning. That's why Wednesday night we had an extended time of prayer. And I would encourage you. We are praying after that was over for another five or six missionaries in dire need. And I know it can go till 9 or 9.30. And not all of you can be, but... But realize, this is effective. This is not just a spiritual thing we do on Wednesday nights to to check it off that we've been faithful for the week. But we are on our knees praying for churches that are at risk, men and women that, that are at risk for eternity. And Paul sees the value of this. His first line of support is prayer. No, not occasionally. Day and night is how Paul prayed. Second line, second line of support is his written letters inspired by God. We read in 2 Timothy 3, 16, that all scripture is inspired by God. Probably a better, uh, vivid translation is all scripture is God-breathed. It comes from God directly. It is breathed from God. It doesn't even say the writers are inspired. It said the word of God is God-breathed. It is breathed through him. So far in this first letter, Paul has warned Timothy of false teachers in that church. He has reminded him of the glorious saving gospel of Christ. He has called him to spiritual warfare. He has exhorted him to faithful, earnest prayer. And he has instructed him in proper worship roles of men and women in the life of the church. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning, 
Paul tackles what may be the linchpin in the divisive machine of the false teachers. There is division and toxicity in the very crucial area of the Ephesian church. Since Paul has expelled the blaspheming Hymenaeus and Alexander, which we studied a few weeks ago, there is an important vacancy of leadership also that needs to be filled. It was good to get rid of them, but now Paul wants the leadership to be established, to build back up. So strategically, Paul now enumerates the qualities needed in the lives of men who will fill the leadership roles of the church in Ephesus. Who will be these elders? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to you this morning, and there's been so much already that we, in our praise and our thanksgiving, our supplication, uh, prayers for each other, Lord, even as what we've seen far across the ocean, uh, even the things that we see going on here. But Lord, we need you. We ask you, as was prayed early by some of the men, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us these, the intention of your Holy Spirit and your word. Help us to understand what you're saying here, Father. It may seem simple, but there is a lot of differences of opinions on these things. So please help us to understand your will and to know you and grow in you. Lord, lead this church. Lord, may we be continually reforming, willing to to grow and change and be the people that you want us to be. Not because the world changes, not to attract men, but according to what your word says. As we see it more clearly, would would we be willing and ready to conform to the image of Christ in what you have written here. In your name we pray, amen. Now the word of God can be very intimidating at times. Uh, it should be. It is actually word that is breathed from God. As I said earlier, th- this is amazing. Just meditate on that sometime. That what we, we have here is a translation of original words that were breathed from God by God through men. It is described as a fire. It is described as a hammer. It is described as a double-edged sword. The word is also described as light in darkness. It is described as a comfort. Hebrews 4 says it's living and powerful. So may the Spirit of God lead us as we study His word of instruction for His church. This church in Ephesus that we read about this morning and this church here on 13th Street in Wichita, Kansas. May we hear the word of the Lord as we look at this. Verse 1 says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. Now we're going to look here at the significance of overseeing. It is indisputable that serving in the role of an overseer is a valuable and virtuous labor. This is a faithful saying. It's a phrase used only in these pastoral epistles. And the pastoral epistles, are, again, are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Four of those times, it introduces an important doctrine, a theological teaching. But in this unique use in verse 1, it announces a very practical and important instruction for how the church functions. Godly, dependable leadership for the church in Ephesus is crucial. It's, it's an absolute if it is going to pull out of its free fall into heresy and dissension. Now we're going to talk about the title overseer, or bishop, or elder. They're synonymous. Paul uses them interchangeably for the same leadership role in Titus chapter 1. Let me read that. For this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, 
that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Bishop is often translated in the New American Standard and others as overseer. So we have elder, bishop, and overseer. Peter does so in 1 Peter 5. Verse 1, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers or bishops, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. If a man desires, now we look at this, although the indefinite pronoun tis here is often translated man, and in some versions we actually reads whomever or anyone. But in this description of an elder, it is appropriate to assume it is a man. Let me give you a couple of reasons. Because first of all, it fits with the masculine adjective, his, that is used in the listing of qualifications for the next eight verses. It fits that. Secondly, it is not possible for a woman to fit the description of being a one-woman man. It's specific what's used there, a one-woman man. Thirdly, women of the historical time period were not heads of the household, as is described in this list. And fourthly, as Paul commanded in last week's study of 1 Timothy 2, he wrote, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Rather, she is to remain quiet. And if you weren't here last week, I pray and ask that you would go back to that and see that because this can seem very abrupt if you don't know the context and what all Paul is saying there. But it is clear that in this that this would disqualify her from the elder role of teaching and leading a mixed congregation of men and women in a public church worship service. That does not mean the women do not have extremely important roles in teaching. We remember Apollos was taught by Aquila and, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They pulled him aside and gave him instruction. Apollos goes on to be perhaps one of the most fervent and effective apologists and evangelists that the New Testament has. And he, why was he that way? Because this couple taught him, brought him aside. But in the, in the church of God, as we saw last week, it is not a woman's role to be a teaching elder in the role of a public worship service. So if a man desires, and there we have, if a man desires, it says the position of an elder, he desires a good work. Honestly, the translation here flip-flops from desire to aspire, and vice versa. But these two words are not interchangeable in the Greek. The first one is desire, is the word arego. The second one is epithumeo. Now, orego means to stretch oneself out, to try to reach out. It's not an internal motivation. It pictures a man reaching out to obtain something. He is taking action. So if a man is reaching out, taking action, is one thing. And then it says, on the other hand, epithumeo means to set the heart upon, to long for, to have a passionate compulsion. Paul's introduction here speaks of a man who is reaching out and taking steps to attain something his heart desires. 
But please look carefully with me at this verse. Do you realize this may or may not be good? It is not the desire of the man or the man himself that is described as good. The man may not meet any of the qualifications of an elder. He may be driven by a desire for power or for wealth or for prosperity, for change from drudgery he experiences in his own vocation, or for a hope for independence. For such man, that desire is not good. Or such a man may be led by God with a strong inner heart motivation of love for Christ and His church. That man would already be striving, reaching out to conform himself to the Word of God and the requirements that Paul lists. As one pastor wrote, simply put, ambition for office corrupts. Desire for service purifies. Now Jesus described the character of those who are fit to lead by how they serve. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. It's pretty pretty direct terms, pretty clear. The church also plays a crucial role in this determination. It helps determine the readiness of a man for eldership. You see, his service, his humility, his consistency, his love for Christ, the servant leadership of his family, his love for the church, many other traits become clear over a period of time of service in the church. This, this isn't particularly easy for me to teach. Because as I was talking with some of the other elders, we were looking at these lists of requirements and you look at these and you see, how many times am I inconsistent? Do I fail in these things? So as I'm teaching this, please don't get the idea that I think I've arrived on all these and this is buttoned down tight for me. It's not. But this is what the Word of God says. And this is the men that that we need to have in leadership for us. We strive for these things. And certainly they must be apparent in our lives to a degree. Though the man and his desire and aspiration may or may not be good, what does Paul say is good here? What is he saying? He's saying it is the work of an elder. And it's the Greek word aragon. And if you've been around in in HR or in the workplace, you hear the word ergonomics. It means labor. It means toil. It means service. Particularly at the time of this letter, Timothy was on no easy street. He had few friends in the city of Ephesus or even in the church. That city hated this upstart religion. It had severely damaged their flourishing idolatry trade for the idol Diana. And we'll read about that later. And within the church... Strong elder personalities disagreed with Paul and with Timothy at practically every point of doctrine and ministry. This was a rough ride for Timothy. Paul, Paul being an apostle and a leader of the church, his life looked like this. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, In labors, work, toil, more abundant, in stripes, 
above measure. And that's not the kind of clothing he was wearing. Those stripes are stripes that were laid across his body by a whip. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Again, the Jews had this way of punishing and they would whip men with these whips 39 times and they would stop. Hoping that he wouldn't die. But giving him such severe anguish and pain that they could hardly even move after that. Paul had gone through that numerous times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I had been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily My deep concern for all the churches. That's the job description. It's not the kind of thing that men run and line up for. You put that online and you probably wouldn't get a lot of responses. That's what happens in the lives of some apostles and particularly some of the elders. Clearly not all elders lived under such peril. But many were, as the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4, they were hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. They were perplexed, but not in despair. They were persecuted, but they were not forsaken. They were struck down, but not crushed. Then it says, always carrying about in their body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in their body. The expectation and duties making up the labor of an elder include these. Grave responsibility. Hebrews chapter 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Elders must watch out for the souls, be in prayer and counsel and encouragement, preaching accurately from the Word of God for the souls of those who are in the assembly. Why? They must give an account, God says. We'll be held responsible. It says, let them do so with joy. I don't want to forget that. Let the elders do that with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Secondly, there's stricter judgment. James chapter 3 verse 1 speaks about teachers. It says, My brethren, not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Other duties include ruling or directing the affairs of the church, preaching and teaching, all in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Praying for the sick, James 5. Caring for the church and being an example to others, 1 Peter 5. Determining policies in the church, Acts 15. And ordaining letter, leaders, 1 Timothy chapter 4. But this morning, this is a long introduction, but in verses 1 through 7, Paul does not focus on the duties at all. Rather, he highlights the character required in a man taking on this good labor. With all the problems, and think about this, with all the problems that are going on in the Ephesian church and with the Ephesian elders, wouldn't Paul have been wise to just say, this is a mess and it's going nowhere good. Let's dissolve this whole elder idea. Let me lead this through you, Timothy, and we will get this thing squared away. But he does not do that. No, he says we are going with God's plan 
of the use of elders, and we are going to do it His way and with the kind of men He describes. David Dixon wrote, the office, and work being sp- the office and work of an elder being spiritual, it is necessary that elders should be spiritual men. It is not necessary. It is not necessary that they be men of great gifts or worldly positions, of wealth or high education. But it is indispensably necessary that they be men of God, at peace with Him, new creatures in Christ Jesus. An elder, then, must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach, must be. What must be in an elder's life? This is what is required in the life of a church overseer. He must be blameless or above reproach. This is not an expectation of perfection. Literally, this word means not arrestable or unrebukable. There should be no area in the elder's life requiring strong discipline or major correction. He cannot be one who has recently undergone a moral or ethical failure. It seems to apply that there is no known reason that suggests future failure or attack on this man or consequently upon the church. His reputation looks clean. We see oftentimes in in churches today where men have had great moral failure financially, uh, perhaps sexually in their marriage, and then they're restored in a matter of months or or perhaps in a year. And they're put back in that position. Paul is saying that there shouldn't be that kind of a, a reputation on the men that lead the church. It seems to imply that this man would be one you could trust. And that's what it's saying. Secondly, it says he's the husband of one wife. Literally, this means a one-woman man. The elder's wife has his full devotion. No other. This means far more than simply he is not committing polygamy, having more than one wife at the same time, or has not recently divorced. Thomas Oden describes the culture surrounding the Ephesian church, and he says, this is how it looked. Marriage was undermined by frequent divorce, widespread adultery, and rampant homosexuality. The elder, however, stands out dramatically different from this. He fulfills, he fulfills the biblical role of a husband with one woman, his wife. It means he dwells with her in knowledge. That means he honors her as a weaker vessel. He nourishes her heart. He spiritually washes her with God's word. In love, he lays down his life for his wife, just as Jesus did for the church. All of those come from scriptural uh, demands for the husband. That is the husband of one wife. Now, there's much disagreement. And and as we look at these lists, as you read them through, you might think, well, that seems uh, fairly clear. There's a lot of disagreement from point to point. On this one in particular, a lot of faithful men in the Word have different opinions on what these requirements mean. Some say that since a single man has no wife, he is not a husband of one wife. So there are those who interpret this to eliminate single men. But we do not see it that way. We, don't, we do not think it takes that position. 
Some would say that it disqualifies a man involved in polygamy. And almost all would agree that this is true. Still others would determine it means that a man whose wife dies and then he marries cannot qualify. And we would not agree with that either. But the position of greater debate has been that a man who has been divorced and then remarries while his first wife is living does not meet the specific description of an elder. Now if I were simply teaching this to a group of pastors in a seminar of some kind, I could merely give caution about placing such a man in the position of an elder and then move on to the next topic. But I'm speaking to brothers and sisters who I, along with Brad and Phil, have the privilege and responsibility to serve and lead. The position of the church here, as long as I've known it, has been that a man who has been divorced and then remarries while his first wife is living may be a brother saved by grace. He may actively serve in ministry here in the church, but he would not be qualified for the role of an overseer or an elder as a husband of one wife. Third item, he is temperate or under self-control. Literally, this means wineless or unmixed with wine. As a metaphor, though, it means that the elder is alert. He is vigilant. He is on guard. An example would be the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles. The sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Their chiefs were 200 and all their brethren were at their command. Hendrickson goes on to say he is discreet. He is not swayed by sudden impulses. Nor is he at all ready to accept the nonsense which is being disseminated by the errorists or the heretics at Ephesus. Next he is sober-minded or prudent. He has a seriousness about the gravity of life. And let me say this may seem like a, a subtle thing, but this is so important. This is so important that it would drive us to things like knowing Christ better, fellowship more closely, evangelism if we have a soberness as leaders. The temperate overseer is consequently a sober-minded man. His heart desires to see life as it truly is through the eyes of God and His Word. One commentator said the reality or the realities that the world is lost, disobedient to God, and bound for hell leave little room for frivolity in His ministry. That doesn't mean that he cannot laugh or, or enjoy uh, good times with friends and fellowship. But he has an overriding seriousness about life and what it is about. Philippians 4 verse 8 is a practical, practical depiction of this man. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything worthy of praise, meditate on these things. That is the prudent man. Next, he is a man of good behavior. He is respectable. He conducts his life in a wholesome, orderly way. This attribute here is the Greek word cosmos. It is where we get the word cosmos. And it literally means orderly. Orderly in the sense of the great order of the universe or cosmos that God designed and created by His Word. Now no man or woman hardly lives up to the orderliness of our Creator God. But there is a discipline in His mind and the lifestyle 
that makes this brother consistent. He is faithful. You know where he's going to be, what he's going to do, who he is. He is respectable. He is of good behavior. Next one is hospitable. It means you enjoy doing and you enable fellowship with others, and particularly strangers. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. 1 Peter 4, 9, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Literally, the translation of this word is to love strangers. The verses just read describe more than caring for people you do not know, however. Hospitality is an outward demonstration of love for others. Your resources, including your home, your time, and your finances, are used to build up those in the family of God and those outside who are in need. It is a tremendous way. Hospitality is a breakthrough, oftentimes, for evangelism. Having the lost in your home, having them from a barbecue, having them over just for dessert or, or dropping by with a gift. Be in fellowship with the lost. It is a way to provide comfort and encouragement to the hurting and lonely. We know that's true. It is God's method for building up His body. Now we just saw this this morning from Ukraine. In the midst of war-torn Ukraine... Look at the quality of hospitality in the action of our brother Pavlo, his wife Ina, and their church. I want to read this from a letter I received two weeks ago from him. Every Sunday, the Lord sends about 200 people to our church, among whom there are refugees. 200 people, that's more than they have in their church, regularly attending. From Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporozhye, and Mykolaiv. For more than one month, we have been preaching Christ to them, distributing food packages, having a fellowship during dinner, and providing spiritual counseling. All the members of our church who have remained in the city are involved in this ministry. Now listen to this specific details. For each Sunday dinner, we use up to 300 sets of disposable tableware, 20 kilograms of cereals, 10 kilograms of onions, 10 kilograms of carrots, 7 kilograms of sugar, 20 cans of stew, 25 loaves of bread, 80 liters of drinks, and 5 liters of oil. Each Sunday we distribute about 1,000 kilograms of products. Every Sunday, a small church smaller than ours. We thank the Lord and all the brothers and sisters through whom the Lord supports us. We have already seen the fruits of this ministry. Nine have repented. And we believe that the Lord will do even more. That's hospitality on a grand scale. But you don't have to, each of you, do a big event for the whole church. When a missionary comes to speak at our church, ask for opportunity to have them for lunch or for breakfast. Team up with another family or a single in this church and do a meal and invite some strangers or unbelievers. Or people, even from the assembly, have them over. Have people or someone just over for dessert. But start doing it. It will build the love and depth of our church fellowship in ways we have yet to see. And many of you are very good at this. And I know many of your hands are full with, with family and all this. But 
Don't miss this important aspect. Now, this is aimed at elders. Elders must be doing these things. But all of these qualities are qualities that we, as the people of God, should be sharing with each other. And many of you are doing this. I appreciate that so much. And the last one here that is a positive attribute is that he is able to teach. He is a teacher. Now, this is one ability required of elders, but it's not required of deacons. The elder must be a teacher. Teaching can occur in a variety of settings. It can be small groups. You can teach one-on-one. You can preach to the assembly like on a Sunday morning. Although the elder may not teach regularly, he must be a man who is able and effective in his teaching. In order to be so, in order to be so, he must be committed to the study, memorization, and interpretation of God's Word. As elders, that must be a priority for our lives. As Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. As leaders, we must study the Word of God and be ready to teach it. Now we're going to go into verse 3, and these are the what must not be in the overseer's life. These are negatives. First of all, he's not given to wine, he's not violent, he's not greedy for money, but gentle, he is not quarrelsome, he is not covetous, not given to wine. Uh, Some of yours might say not a drunkard or not controlled by wine. He does not have a reputation as a drinker. While Scripture does not insist that a believer abstain from wine, it does appear that this was Timothy's practice, and Paul actually encouraged him to drink a bit of wine for medicinal purposes for his stomach, not to interact socially, but he's saying, Timothy, take some of this for your stomach. Timothy apparently, and some of the commentators say, because of what was going on in the church in Ephesus, had made a decision that he would abstain from wine completely. Also, Scripture gives many warnings concerning wine and strong drink, which can have devastating effect on the judgment and abilities of those who drink them, particularly for leaders. Because of the elders' grave responsibility, the spiritual warfare, and the potential for failure as elders, we abstain from alcohol based on God's words of warning in Scriptures like these. Isaiah 28, 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. Isaiah 56, verses 10 through 12. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine. Let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. Now, I realize there are other churches and and men that I respect and love very much who are active in ministry that have differences of opinions on some of these ideas. But this is where our church is, and and I want to be forthright on that and how we see it in the Scriptures. The next negative is he's not violent. 
He's not inclined to physical violence, but instead it says he's gentle. The King James translates that as he is not a striker. This word actually comes from a word of fist. He doesn't settle matters of dispute with physical violence. Hendrickson said, Think of the backwoodsmen of former days who literally wore a chip on their shoulder. You've heard that saying, a chip on their shoulder. As a challenge to fight anyone who would dare to knock it off. Whence our, express, our expression, he carries a chip on his shoulder. He is not a man like that. He is not looking for a fight. Whether it's a physical fight, or whether it's even a, uh, perhaps a spiritual fight. Uh, is he willing to stand his ground? Yes, he is. But he's not looking for a fight. Paul goes ahead and he gives the opposite here. He says the opposite of the violent man and the quarrelsome man is one that is gentle. Now store that thought in your mind for just a moment. And let's look at the next requirement. The overseer is not greedy for money. He is not driven by desire for wealth. The elder has a sense of financial contentment. A desire for greater wealth does not drive his decision making. Now how can that be? Paul wrote in Philippians, he said, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And and that phrase is so misused so often. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It doesn't necessarily mean that I can hit a home run or I can run and make a touchdown or I can do all these things that I desire. Paul is saying I could be content in any and every situation because Christ strengthens me. I can be the man He is calling me to be in every moment because it is not I but Christ. I spoke with a young man this, mor- this week on Tuesday morning and he was sitting across at another table and I just said, are you okay, man? And it just opened up a floodgate of conversation. And we began to talk and he, he was sharing with me some of the struggles and his direction in life. And he was telling me how much confidence he said, but I do have a strong faith in myself. And we talked for a little while and then he asked me, what do you think about what I said? I have a strong faith in myself. I said, I think that's kind of dangerous. I said, I understand having confidence. But the Bible says that our hearts are deceptive above all things. And who can understand it? And if you look at what the scriptures also say and who you are, man, we are frail. We are frail mentally. We are frail emotionally. We are frail spiritually. We are frail physically. You don't know if you'll be able to walk up from that table. We just don't know. But Christ is none of those things. And the scripture says we can do all things through him who strengthens us. So the idea that I was trying to convey to him, I said, that's fine to have some confidence, but that confidence must be in Christ. And we had a good conversation about that. I'm not sure how I even got onto that from this under uh, desire for wealthy. Oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, it goes on in First Timothy chapter 6, and we'll get to this, about this idea of wealth. It says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Those are strong warnings. It doesn't mean that you can't be successful or aspire to be successful. But there are grave warnings that go with those things. And you have to be near Christ as you pursue those things. You must be humble. You must be content with where he puts you. At stake here is a question raised by Hendrickson. Can this elder be trusted with the church's funds, the finances? Can your elders be trusted? Judas, who lived and ministered for three years with Jesus Christ himself, could not. Next was not quarrelsome or not argumentative. Paul responds to this man's methods in 2 Timothy 2. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The quarrelsome man is right at times. But his harshness or determination to win the argument cripples the team of leaders and they cannot have an open, mutually respectful give and take because that one man insists on victory with his opinion. It's my way or the highway. There is certainly a place for not compromising on doctrinal truth. Absolutely. An elder cannot simply be a yes man. But for the quarrelsome man, every issue and opinion rises to a level of must-win intensity. His method is not kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. That's the kind of men we want to look for. Next, he is not covetous. He is not discontent, desiring what he doesn't have or what others do have. This would be a direct violation of God's command in Exodus 20. He says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Hebrews 13.5 directs the man of God. It says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Colossians 5.3-5 gives a graver, more sober analysis of covetousness. Listen. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you covet, brother, you may be an adulterer, I mean idolater, and you may have no place in the kingdom of God. Colossians 3 says the same thing. Verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In overseeing the church of God a man must not be pulled into idolatry. Because of his discontentment with what God has given or done in his life. Rather, he must be content with such things as he has. Look for that in the men for leadership. Do you see that? Now, for the final three requirements, Paul explains consequences. He adds quite a bit here. 
If these qualities are not found in an elder, here we're going to read it. He is one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Mismanagement. Mismanagement from the family to church. The elder manages his family and household affairs effectively, including being demonstrated by children who submit to his leadership with all dignity. Although single men such as Paul and Timothy are not eliminated because of this requirement, it assumes that most men in consideration are married and also have children. The elder is to provide an example to the church of honoring Christ as a manager of his household. Now this includes a whole lot of things. It does, but it includes particularly his role as a husband and a father. Are the affairs of his family and home in order? Is he an apparent good steward? And that's part of this whole definition here. Is he a good steward of his family, his home, and even his finances? Is he responsible? Paul says, look at his children. See if they are in submission to his leadership. As one commentator explains, all reverence or dignity includes courtesy, humility, and competence. Now listen, please. There is a spirit of respect from the children toward their fathers. But there is some definition here that goes two ways. And it sometimes is not clear what is meant here. And that is good. It's not only the children that are to show their obedience and submissiveness with dignity and respect. It also may be said that the father who raises these children must do so in a way that shows them dignity and respect too. He is not demeaning them. He is not uh, Im- frustrating them in ways that Scripture talks about that would provoke them to wrath, to anger. He is a father who also treats his, re- his children with respect and dignity. A godly father will convey a spirit of courtesy, humility, and competence to his children as he leads them. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the children of God? A man who is unable to manage his household well will not take good care of God's children. Mismanagement carries from an overseer's family to God's family. One commentator said, resolving conflict, building unity, maintaining love, and serving each other are essentials to church life that are challenges also in the home. If he succeeds in his family, he is likely to succeed in God's family. If not, he is disqualified. This requirement shows not only the importance of the elder's management of his family, but what does it really tell us? What does it tell us more even than that? It tells us that God loves his family. And he wants leaders, elders, who will be able to manage that church in an effective, godly way. Titus was an elder with this kind of a loving heart for God's church. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent him with the brothers whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Titus signed up for that opportunity. It was presented and he loved the church and he wanted to give himself to it. Now such a man as an elder, it goes on to say in verse 6, cannot be a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. He cannot be immature. 
There is a potential there for pride and then condemnation. He is not a man recently converted to faith in Christ in case he would become blinded by pride with the premature leadership role and failed dramatically receiving the same condemnation the devil rightly received. A novice here is the word neophytos. And it comes from a Greek word that means a newly planted tree. A novice is a new convert or recently born again believer. Now being placed in an elder leadership role as a recent convert could easily result in being puffed up with pride. That word puffed up actually means puffed up with smoke, literally. His head is in the clouds. His head is in the smoke. He doesn't see clearly. As in the fall of Satan brought on by his pride in elevation to great heights of glory, he too was puffed up or smoke covered by pride. Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze you, gaze upon you. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Unfortunately, while a novice may be eager and zealous, he will lack experience, he will lack maturity. Because of the newness of a faith, he will need time to grow. He will need a consistent prayer life and he will need to have the understanding and use of God's word. And that cannot happen in a man who is newly converted to Christ. There's grave warnings not to put them, no matter how zealous, no matter how they have won the business world, the education world, their statistics and military accomplishments, needs to be a man who has known Christ and been faithful to him for some time. Then lastly, it says he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Hypocrisy. It has the power to destroy. His reputation, even among outsiders from the church, must be good. Otherwise, his hypocrisy will create disapproval and disappointment toward him and the church, and the devil will ensnare him because of his false, pretentious life. Philippians 2 verse 15 says, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We have a crooked and perverse generation in whom we must shine as lights of the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be those who would be well respected. Now we realize our testimony may turn people against that, but our honesty, our faithfulness, the integrity of our work should stand above any among whom we work with. Colossians 4 verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. 1 Peter 2 12, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. 
Let your life speak to those wherever you are, in your neighborhood, at your place of work, as one that exemplifies the character of Christ. And men of God, men who would want to be elders, that must be your reputation, even among those in the world. These last warnings are very strong for both of these two, immaturity and hypocrisy. Immaturity results in the elder potentially falling into the same condemnation of the devil. And hypocrisy sets one up to be trapped by the devil. Both of these are stern cautions of the tragic results of premature or hypocritical leadership. Those are the listings of the requirements or standards for the elder. And I I pray that this will help us as we look for the future of of men that we would have to lead our church. We're going to be going through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And as elders, we're going to be considering some of the things that we're studying here and in what ways God would have us to change or, or move or direct even our own eldership. We want to be in tune with what the scriptures say. So pray for us and pray that God would show what other men would be appropriate and proper to be elders in this assembly. And then pray for each other. We are in a war. We are in a spiritual war like none other. Constantly. I know each of your families and and you're struggling with different things. You have great successes, great joys, and you have great sorrows and challenges. Be on your knees. Take that list of prayer, uh, our prayer list, and, and take it home. Put that up and pray for each other consistently. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God this morning. We thank you that you have spoken to us on how men should behave, the kind of character that they should have if they are going to be leaders, overseers, elders in your church. Lord, we know too that that none of us us meet all of these standards. We know too, even worse, that we all are sinners and that we have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for that. And while this looks to men who have had experience and have proven themselves in the faith, I know that there are many here who have never come to faith. And Father, I pray that you would draw them to you. Lord, that they would see the seriousness of their sin. They would confess that to you. And they would repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Please bring new life into our church. Lord, I I pray that you would continue to build the saints that do love you. Grant them humility. Grant them a zeal for you. Father, some of these characteristics, I pray, that would blossom in every life, men and women, young and old. Lord, be exalted, be magnified by this small church. Use us for your glory and your honor. In your name we pray, amen.